Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. In these days of megabands playing to many thousands of fans in Superstadia, I doubt if you 2 Bruce Springsteen, the Rolling Stones or even Taylor Swift had as auspicious a debut performance as I had. It was January 1980, and, newly returned to Dublin, I had difficulty paying the rent, which was then the daunting, now unimaginably cheap, £25 per week for a wonderful two-bedroom, top-floor, self-contained flat on Moorhampton Road. I looked around for ideas to earn money, and, in my desperation, began to consider monetizing the guitar that friends had only a few months previously clubbed together to buy for me as a birthday present. The fact that I had barely learned four chords, which I could only change with face-contorting difficulty, was certainly a consideration, but insufficient deterrent, such is the blithe vanity, and dare I say ignorance, of youth. With the rent due and no obvious means of paying it, I decided to get up the following day and, well, busk. I told nobody of my intentions, as more sensible and musical friends would have stopped me. The risk was magnified by the fact that not only could I only barely play the guitar, but I had only one or two songs I knew well enough to sing, and this, married to my extreme shyness, were the ingredients, at the very least, of a public humiliation. Next morning, already emotionally exhausted from nervous anticipation, I quietly slipped out of the flat with my guitar wrapped up in an old woollen coat out of which my partner had fashioned a zip-up guitar case and got on my bike with the guitar slung over my shoulder. But where to start? I had seen buskers at the old Parliament building in College Green opposite the main entrance to Trinity College. That seemed as good a place as any. So... Full of a manic determination, I cycled down to Stevens Green, down Grafton Street and on to College Green, resolved not to deviate from my plan and oblivious to much of what was happening around me. I do recall being surrounded by a lot of street noise, but spent no time identifying it. My plan was that I would simply get off my bike, take out my guitar, turn to face the street and start to sing the song I was most comfortable with which happened to be the Beatles' Let It Be. Hesitation was not an option. So I did precisely that. I dismounted, took out my guitar, and, fingers clinging nervously to the shape of the chord of C, turned towards Dame Street. Whatever courage I had anticipated having immediately deserted me. Throngs of people were in front of me, not stationary, but moving very slowly, spread across the road in lines heading in the direction of Westmoreland Street. They were carrying banners and placards, most of which had the letters P-A-Y-E written across them. As I turned to face them, they seemed to all turn towards me, standing there nervously with my mouth open on a cold January day, with a guitar as yet unstrummed in my hands. The urge to flee came foremost to my mind. But, I reasoned, I had come this far, I might as well keep going. I was also slightly consoled by the thought that the people were moving and therefore, at least individually, wouldn't be an audience for longer than it would take me to painstakingly reshape my fingers around another chord. 
So I began. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me. My singing was immediately drowned out by an army of protesters, chanting about the unfair taxation burden on the pay-as-you-earn, or P-A-Y-E, workers. I kept singing. My mouth opened and closed while my fingers laboriously changed chords. And as I soon discovered, the beauty of it was that I could keep singing the same song as no one was really listening. Occasionally there were lulls in the chanting and my voice could be heard above the constant shuffling of feet. This was a testing time, until I discovered that if you sing the words let it be often enough, they begin to sound an awful lot like P-A-Y-E. So I started to sing that instead. Suddenly, coins were being flung at me from all angles, accompanied by approving nods and shouts of encouragement. No one seemed to mind my lack of skill, but appreciated my perceived solidarity with their cause. I don't know how long it took for the protesters to pass me, but news reports later confirmed that over 350,000 people took part in what was one of Ireland's largest ever protests. Springsteen, eat your heart out. What I do clearly remember, though, was their generosity. After they had passed by, fading to a distant cacophonous hum, and when I could sing no more, I counted the money in my guitar case. Twenty-six pounds and fifteen pence. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, Speaking words of wisdom, P-A-E-Y-E. In times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right in front of me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. I was in our car with my husband as we were driving on the way to Dublin when the song let the sunshine in, came on the radio. I immediately said to Lawrence, I'm in New Jersey and it's the spring of 1969. The musical Hair was huge that year and the song Aquarius, Let the Sunshine In, was released by the Fifth Dimension in the American charts. I had scarlet fever, so I was off school those weeks from the fifth grade. I had sole control of the radio at my bedside and for the first time, I was discovering music for myself, choosing songs that I liked. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Hearing certain music can suddenly trigger strong memories. There are songs that come on the radio and I'm happy to listen to them as I sing along. But there are certain songs that carry me back to an exact moment in my life. Recently, while I was in our kitchen, I heard the song Sugar Sugar by the Archies. As soon as it had begun, I was back to 1970. Our family had just moved home to Letterkenny. Hearing the song had me in seventh class in the prefab at the girls' school. It is break time and we have gathered into the middle of the room. 
The girls are lilting. Sugar, my honey, honey, you are my candy girl. And they're jiving in the classroom. Some of the girls are trying to teach me, the yank, how to jive. They tell me that there's a TV program called Top of the Pops on a Thursday evening. I will be watching it for years to come. Another song that triggers memories is Alone Again, Naturally, by Gilbert O'Sullivan. With the first notes of that song, I am back again in 1972, upstairs in our house on Lower Main Street, and I'm doing my homework. And I hear music getting louder as it is moving towards the room. My mother had been downstairs in the kitchen when the song that she knew I loved came on the radio. So she carried it up the stairs for me to listen. I was so pleased. I was a teenager then, and I had my huffy moments with her. I'm grateful now for that memory. Some songs are just background music while I'm in my house or the car. Some have me nodding my head or dancing in the kitchen. And some transport me back to an exact moment Horselips, Jarg Doom, comes on the radio and I'm back in the Fiesta Ballroom, Letter Kenny. I've just been to the Gaeltacht, so I've learned how to swizz. And I'm in the middle of the dance floor, swizzing and jumping about with my friends. It was the first time that I didn't sit as part of the line of girls down the right-hand side of the hall. The first time I didn't worry if anyone was going to ask me out to dance. We were all just joyfully jigging about the dance floor as horselips played. So many songs can bring back solace and joy from self-defining moments in my life. And for my family, Bruce Springsteen's songs carry such strong memories, especially now, since our eldest son has passed away. Some Springsteen songs evoke moments in our family home, and some now bring me back to Bruce's concert in the RDS last May. Our son Damien, his wife and their nine-year-old son and Lawrence and I are up in the stands on a blessed, balmy evening. Born in the USA is played and my son turns to me and hugs me. Damien's health is fading and we know it is a gift that he even managed to be there. Three hours later, to finish the concert, Bruce sings, I'll see you in my dreams, and I can hardly breathe. Afterwards, I said to our grandson, I'm hoarse now, and he said, That's all the shouting you were doing, Granny. I hope he remembers me, singing my heart out as we shared that wondrous evening. So many Springsteen songs bring me back to family moments from our early years and so many for recent times. Dancing in the Dark comes on the car radio, and I'm back in the Donegal hospice, watching tearfully as our grandson, seated on his mother's lap, sings that song, word for word, while his daddy drifts deeper into sleep. And for our grandson in the future, I wonder what songs will evoke strong memories for him, Hopefully, there will be music, whole playlists that will place him back with his parents. So many songs 
that will bring memories of humming and singing and moments played loudly, joyfully in his childhood home. I hope music will always bring him life-enhancing memories. In the Dead by James Joyce and Kate in a discussion about singers announces that for her there was only one tenor, to please me, I mean. But I suppose none of you ever heard of him. His name, she said, was Parkinson. I heard him when he was in his prime and I think he had then the purest tenor voice that was ever put into a man's throat. But the others in the company have never heard of him. Scholars have suggested that this is Joyce's way of showing that Aunt Kate's memory is fading. One writing, for example, that it seems unlikely that such a group of aficionados would have known nothing of so remarkable a tenor voice as that evoked by Aunt Kate. But I think I know what Aunt Kate might have meant. In 1977, in the Palau de la Musica, the main concert hall in Barcelona, there was a Beethoven marathon, a whole day dedicated to Beethoven's music. Lasting eight hours, it included a piano concerto, chamber music, and ended with the Ninth Symphony. But what stood out for me was when, in the late afternoon, a soprano came onto the stage and sang a single song called The Elfin Fairies, one of Beethoven's Irish songs. It could not have lasted more than three minutes. I thought the singer had the most delicate, expressive and exquisite voice. Even now, 45 years later, I can remember how she balanced the lilting tone in the arrangement against the soaring notes in the melody. She was supremely confident. Her name was Carmen Bustamante, and she must have been in her 30s then. But when I asked about her, no one seemed to recognise her name. I wondered why she was not as famous as other singers in Barcelona then, such as Montserrat Cavalier and Victoria de Los Angeles. And then I met someone who explained. Carmen Bustamante was a famous singing teacher. While she did sometimes perform, she did not tour much and had made no recordings. Like Veronica Dunn in Ireland, the quality of her voice was known only to a few. But she inspired several generations of students. She became my Parkinson. She was a soprano who had pleased me. But I had only heard her once. Just one song. Recently, I went back to that concert hall in Barcelona to give a talk about music in the city in the 1970s. And I thought I should check in the age of the internet to see if there was any more information about Carmen Bustamante. And I found to my delight that she had made a number of CDs and I could now, after all the years, listen to her voice again. Like other Catalan singers, she had made a CD of Catalan folk songs that in complex arrangements had almost become art songs as performed by, say, Victoria de los Angeles or José Carreras. 
in these songs, Carmen Bustamante's voice was as confident and exquisite as I remembered. But like the other two singers, she'd also worked with the songs of a number of Catalan composers who had thrived at the beginning of the 20th century, whose songs had become part of the Catalan repertoire, but were hardly known outside Catalonia. Composers like Frédéric Mompou, Xavier Monsalvace and Edouard Toldra. There was one song by Toldra, a setting of a poem by the Catalan poet Giuseppe Carne, whose work had been translated by the Irish poet Pierce Hutchinson, that I started to listen to over and over. After all the years, here was the voice again, Carmen Bustamante, delicate, intimate, haunting, the control and timing perfect. It is nonetheless hard to explain why this was the voice for me, Perhaps something in the mixture of modesty and a striving for perfection, simplicity combined with technical perfection, perhaps an understated sense of yearning, perhaps because she was more at home with delicate art songs than large operatic parts. I don't know. Before the lecture in Barcelona, I sent the people there the text, and since it contained so many dates and facts, they decided to check in case I'd got something wrong. Who now remembered a Beethoven marathon in Barcelona in 1977? Who remembered Montserrat Cavalier singing Wagner in 1978? And who remembered Carmen Bustamante? In the office that day, when the fact-checker asked his colleagues if anyone knew her name, they all shook their heads except one. He said that Carmen Bustamante was a neighbour of a friend of his. When they found a number for her and phoned her, she said she was indeed the singer. And yes, she had sung that Beethoven song in the Palau de la Musica in that concert in 1977. A week later, as I spoke in the concert hall about what it meant to hear her then and what it had meant for all the years to carry the memory of her voice, knowing that this memory was not generally shared, I knew that Carmen Bustamante, a sprightly 84-year-old, was in the front row. So that the audience would know what her voice at its height had been like, we played in her presence a recording of that Toldra song. It is called Canso Incerta. The first time that I went into O'Donoghue's pub on Merrion Row in Dublin was when I was five years old. It was the 1970s and I was there with my family for the Sunday afternoon session in the back room. We stood outside the pub with a crowd of others, some carrying musical instruments, until the side door opened at 12.30 and everyone filed into the back room. It was soon packed. The benches that lined the walls were full as were the small black stools around tables that were quickly laden with drinks. The room may well have included famous, or soon-to-be-famous people, because O'Donoghue's was then still the centre of the city's traditional music revival that had started in the 1960s. 
Though I don't remember, because I spent most of that session in the laneway beside the pub, tears streaming from my eyes from the effects of the dense cloud of cigarette smoke in the back room, I'm pretty sure that first day my mother sang. She'd been singing since she was a child, when she was put forward by her mother to give renditions at community events in the town of Kenosha, Wisconsin, USA. Brought up with third-generation memories of Ireland, she became steeped in both Irish and American folk music. The Clancy Brothers and Tom Paxton, the Dubliners and Judy Collins. When we moved permanently to Ireland in 1979, O'Donoghue's, or O'Dee's as it was sometimes known, became a central part of my life. My mother was a regular at O'Donoghue's sessions for more than three decades. There are other music pubs she brought me to, Taylor's Hall, The Brazen Head with Liam Weldon, Searson's on Cable Street, Hughes's behind the forecourts. But of all of them, O'Donoghue's was the most important. It also became a frequent place for me on Thursday nights and Sunday afternoons when I was older, often standing outside like I had done when I was five, waiting for the pub to reopen after the Sunday holy hour. The sessions were with Martin Denning, Johnny Keenan, Mick Fitzgerald and Davy Banks. The drinks served by Con and Greg behind the bar. My mother was a central figure at those sessions. Her repertoire was a mixture of American and Irish. There was Tom Paxton's Rambling Boy, a Judy Collins-esque version of Amazing Grace, The Bold Fenian Men, Will You Go, Lassie, Go, Red is the Rose. She even wrote her own songs and put airs to the words of William Butler Yeats. She had a voice that could command not just a room, but a packed pub. It was quite something to hear a raucous, busy O'Donoghue's fall into silence when she started into the first bars of a song. Drinkers crowding to see the voice, tourists taking photos, the room singing the chorus. In my early teenage years, when I didn't go to O'Donoghue's, I'd stay awake until I could hear the distinctive sound of our Volkswagen Beetle's engine long before she turned the corner to our road. In later years, I brought friends to my mother's sessions in O'Donoghue's, particularly my school friend Stephen Ladd. There came a time when the two of us could walk in the front door, the pub heaving, and hold up two index fingers to Greg or Con, standing on high stools behind the bar like ship's lookouts, who would then shout to the poorer, One and one! Shortly afterwards, a Guinness and a Carlsberg would be sent our way. We had many good nights there. However, eventually, inevitably, perhaps belatedly, I grew out of going to pubs with my mother. While I did meet some girls there, I realised that there were far more interesting prospects in other venues in the city. And so my days in O'Donoghue's came to an end. My mother continued to sing there for many more years. But in time, the scene changed. Musicians changed. People listened less to the music and she no longer felt like she belonged. I'm not sure she ever found something that could fill the place that O'Donoghue's had once held in her life. But, to this day, whenever I pass the iconic black-and-white facade of O'Donoghue's, I can still hear the remarkable sound of a full pub fall into a hushed silence as my mother takes a breath, closes her eyes and starts to sing.
According to Carl Jung, nothing has a stronger influence psychologically on their environment, and especially on their children, than the unlived life of the parent. What a profound yet devastating insight. I suspect he's right. I've heard people inadvertently use this idea of Jung's as an explanation for the modern pushy parent. I never got onto the county camogie squad, so I'll make sure that you do. You will tog out in all weather. I will drive you around and around in a web of car journeys that will take in every pitch this side of the Shannon. I will cheer from the sidelines and drag you forward even when you've had enough. You will achieve what I never did. The anecdotes of helicopter, lawnmower and leaf blower parents abound where I come from. But I prefer to flip this idea a little. I see Young's kernel of truth and insight in a softer light. My mother is a woman of few regrets, but there was one thing. After every sing-song, after every Sunday Mass with a particularly edifying recital, even after a funeral where the singing was beautiful, she would state in a wistful voice that she wished she had joined a choir. I was never any good on my own, she would say to us, and latterly to her grandchildren, but I would have loved to be in a choir. I think, unconsciously, I must have been keen to sweep away her one remaining niggle. I would make reparation for her. She could live those unsung moments vicariously through me. I was happy to compensate her for her loss and make restitution. It's the least I could do. So I joined a choir. It's made up of my colleagues and me, an initiative by our county council to encourage a positive atmosphere in the workplace. Despite the initial scepticism of our boss, a large number of us signed up. In the spirit of inclusiveness, there were no additions, nor have there been any demands for soloists to step up to the plate. After a few months, the numbers have dwindled, yet there is still a core group committed to singing together. We rehearse weekly and have already performed to a very sympathetic and forgiving home crowd. Our next challenge is to move from carols to gospel or a cappella, or perhaps I am jumping ahead of our abilities. Normally I relate to my colleagues through emails and over rushed cups of tea in the staff room. We borrow staplers, swap textbooks and complaints. Now I can look around a rehearsal room at 8am on a dark Wednesday morning and appreciate my colleagues in a different light. I am tickled to observe the women who, as children, clearly enjoyed the benefits of stage school. Then there are the quiet ones with pure voices, evenly delivered with assurance, and the ones like myself, hanging on to what's left of their vocal cords after decades of misuse. I even find myself surprisingly protective towards the few brave men doing their best to hold their own amidst the female hegemony. At these early morning rehearsals, there is much throat clearing and spluttering, coughing and off-key croaking. We nod apologetically to each other needlessly as we make mistakes, but we plough on. And then occasionally it happens. A few notes carried in harmony, our voices warm and round, resonating together in the space around us. The hairs on my arms stand on end. I know we are doing something right. 
and then it's gone. We still have a lot to learn. Singing is something we all do as children, and I am told I did it reasonably well. But at what point did I become ashamed of or embarrassed by my singing voice and put it away? The return of singing into my life makes me reflect on what else I have disposed of prematurely. Swimming, hockey and art perhaps, all activities I loved when I was younger but failed to carry with me into adulthood. Like my mother, I don't like to dwell on regrets, but it does make me wonder. And unlike Jung, I don't know for certain if my unlived life will have such immense power over my children. But what I do know is that as I loosen my facial muscles with embarrassing stretching exercises and warm up my voice with one bottle of pop, or as I conquer the more challenging rounds of old Abram Brown, singing in a choir for me has moved from the realm of the unlived life and firmly into my everyday reality. On this morning's mix of new and recent archive scripts, we heard When I Find Myself in Times of Trouble by Kevin Connolly. Memories in Music by Denise Blake. Rediscovering Carmen Bustamante by Cullum Tobin. My Mother and O'Donoghue's Pub was by Tim Carey. And Young, My Choir and Me by Sheila Marr. The music was Let It Be by The Beatles, Dancing in the Dark by Bruce Springsteen, Canso Inserta by Edward Tuldra, sung by Carmen Bustamante, and Amazing Grace, sung by Judy Collins. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You can find more from Sunday Miscellany and other RTE arts and culture programmes at rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.